The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, January 30th, the Basketball Families Edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate and the author of How to Be a Family, and I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 14, and Harper, who's 12. We live in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is six, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the family travel and homeschool blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm mom to three boys, Henry seven, Oliver five, and Teddy three. My husband's in the Air Force, so we're currently calling Navarre, Florida home. Today on the show, we have a question from the wife of a basketball coach. He spends a lot of time on the court while she resents feeling like the only coach on the home court. Is it selfish to ask him to trade the team for his family? We'll also be discussing the passing of Kobe and Gianna Bryant and the seven others who lost their lives in Sunday's helicopter crash in L.A. The news of the accident is somewhat unavoidable. Jamila wrote about it in this week's Karen Feeding column, and we're going to talk, all three of us, about how you discuss a tragedy like this with your kids. Plus, triumphs and fails and recommendations. Let's start with you, Jamila. Do you have a triumph or a fail for us this week? Once again, I have something that cannot quite be categorized as merely a triumph or merely a fail. It's and beyond somehow, such designations. Yes, it somehow lands in the middle. So yesterday when I went to pick Naima up from her school, the coordinator told me that she'd gotten into a little bit of trouble. I said, okay, well, you know, what happened? And, and she said she wasn't entirely clear on the story, which I was kind of frustrated by. But by her account, Naima was in the bathroom with another little girl and may have been singing some sort of song that was inappropriate and had some sort of sexual language in it. And so she said that when the counselor brought the kids involved in the situation to her and she attempted to talk to Naima about it, she just broke into tears and she was really upset and begged her not to tell me. And so I was a little bit perplexed because obviously, as I've mentioned on the show, it's only been a few weeks since Naima Googled sex and Obviously, I know that she's interested in learning more about the topic at this moment, but I didn't expect it to show up at school in this way. So she goes to get Naima and I ask her what happened. And what I was able to figure out in less than two minutes from speaking to my child is what I wish that the after school staff had pieced together, which is that there was a little girl who was singing R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly. And as Naima has done a number of times in the past, she made a point of telling her that we should not sing R. Kelly songs because he's a bad man who does bad things to little girls. And so the child in question asks, "Okay, well, what does he do? And Naima, you know, comes up to her and whispers he has S.E.X. with them. And so the headline then becomes that Naima was talking about sex as opposed to sharing some information that perhaps was a little bit above her weight class, but that her heart was in the right place and she wasn't making light of any of it. And so I am feeling somewhat guilty that Naima is carrying this information and wasn't adequately prepared to not share it with her friends. And that was the conversation that we had on the way home, which is that she wasn't wrong and she wasn't in trouble and she hadn't done anything bad, but that conversations about things like that are best handled between parents and children. It's good that she wants to let everyone know that they shouldn't support R. Kelly, but just, you know, that she can leave it at, he's a bad person who's done some really bad things to girls and women. And maybe you could ask your parents to tell you a little bit more about it. She was a crusader for justice. She was. I also am Team Naima. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm definitely Team Naima. And I did defend her. You know, I mean, it wasn't yeah. like she'd gotten in any real trouble. And I told her, I was like, look, I'll stand up for you with other adults. You know, I don't want you to think that when you get in trouble at school, I'm always going to be on the side of the law. Right. Because the law isn't always correct. And in this instance, they got it wrong. But I do feel bad that she was just so upset over being reprimanded. You know, she hadn't done anything mischievous. I still am chalking this up really as a triumph. Yeah, like I feel kid like kid this was standing is a up triumph. for justice. You handled it, I think, exactly right. It's firmly team triumph here. Okay, and I think you. you taught her that she can trust you. You know, it's reaffirming yeah. that trust that she can tell you exactly what happened and that you will tell it to her straight. You know, hey, this is why you like quote unquote got in trouble, but. You know, I think you did the right thing and 
That's a good lesson. I hope so. Um, And I hope that the after school coordinator, I should say it was the end of the day. She seemed a little frazzled and she didn't seem terribly upset about, you know, what they thought Naima had done wrong or terribly concerned or, or, you know, moved by what I'd said. But there's like a culture of zero tolerance policies. Right. And so, like, I don't understand how two adults weren't able to figure out what happened and had my child that upset as opposed to, you know, it being like, well, she said sex. So obviously she did something wrong, you know, and it just when we get to this conversation that we're going to have a bit later about the complicated emotions and thoughts that so many of us are dealing with this week, our sexual education can't start at 12 Right. Like it it can't start when there's some terrible headline about somebody that we respect, you know, like R. Kelly uh, for many people at one point. And so that there was just a fear of the word sex as opposed to like, well, why was she talking about sex? And also, is there something going on in our house that Naeem is being exposed to that you should be concerned about? You know, that we completely bypassed that and just got stuck on the idea of inappropriate language makes me feel really bummed out. Our kids upbringing in the Netherlands, they are much more casual about sex and about body parts. And all of that is very open and talked about in schools. And so I often hear and mine is more with like naming body parts and them freely discussing penises, vaginas, all of that. And kind of the looks that I get at just the idea that my you know three year old knows like the right words. I think people are like shocked by that. But it goes to that culture of talking about all of this is just bad or wrong. Elizabeth, do you have a triumph or a fail for us this week? The jury is still out on mine as well. So um, (laughs) after I had Henry, we had just moved to Colorado and I sort of found my people there in this fit for mom exercise group and an apparent pregnancy pact. We all had our second children within a few weeks of each other. Um, And then some of us went on to have third kids. We kind of moved away. There was a military civilian group, you know. Okay, so fast forward. We all now are sort of done having kids. We're at a place where we can like go have a mom's weekend. And we decide that we are going to meet up and I feel like, yay, self-care. I'm so excited. I want to see these women. These are women that like really get kind of the parenting journey that I've been on. A lot of them are stay-at-home moms. Well, I totally missed the part where I was actually committing to run a 10K with them. <laughs> and yeah, so um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not even joking. I was like, oh, I'm going on this girls weekend. And then they like uh-huh. send stuff about signing up for the race. So I sign up. I like have the family all as my cheerleaders. My husband is a runner. So he's like training with me, running with me. The kids are running with me. We have like a countdown on the wall. You know how mommy's training for this 10K. I still totally hate this, but it feels like I'm showing the kids we can achieve things and we can commit to this. Well, as Jeff is leaving, he's out of town for work this week. As he's leaving, he says something like, keep your eye on the prize. You'll be with the girls at Disney before you know it. And my kids are like, you're going to Disney? Uh Are we going to Disney? And I was like, no. Uh, The run I'm going to is at Disney. They are not pleased with me now. And my five-year-old specifically just walks up to me and asks me if I'll be riding particular rides he loves. So he'll say, like, are you going to ride Haunted Mansion? And I'm like, probably. He just, like, shakes his head and walks away. Like, that is the only conversation he has. So Jeff's been gone. And the one child cries every time anything comes up because I'm going to Disney. And the three-year-old is calling me a liar. (laughs) So, so yes. So I think the success is that I'm taking a self-care weekend, which is something that I need. Um, The fail, though, is that my kids found out I'm secretly going to Disney. The fail is that your otherwise wonderful husband totally blew it. He totally blew it and then literally was like, gotta go. Out the door. (laughs) Have fun dealing with this for a week. Yeah. So when he gets back, he could help me clean up this mess. Because right now I've just been like pacifying it with bribes and other things to get through. My first instinct when your son asked you if you were going to be riding his favorite ride and I expected you to say, oh, of course not. I'm not going to be doing anything but running (laughs) was to say, well, why would you tell him that? But you know what? I think it's good that you're letting him know that you're going to have fun without him and that they should come to expect that we are allowed to and perhaps obligated to have fun without them, even at Disney World, which is definitely the meanest thing any mom has ever done, (laughs) but a necessary evil. Yeah, well, thank you. You know, the intent was never like to lie to them. I think it just kind of got left out of the conversation. Reasonably so. so. But I agree. I figure since I've already spilled the beans, I might as well just really lay out what I'll be doing for them. (laughs) 
<laughs> the good news is it will be Jeff who will be home with them while you're at Disney texting photos of yourself on all the various rides. Exactly. I plan to get payback with lots of photos. Right. <laughs> this week, I have a clear and obvious fail. Uh, no doubt about it. <laughs> it's a little one, but it's very emblematic, I think, of just many of the greater problems of my parenting. The <laughs> other day, I was dropping Harper off at play rehearsal. She is involved, I think, as I mentioned a week or two back, she's involved in this production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat at the mm-hmm. church we have started attending. It's a delightful production full of kids. There's like 25 or 30 kids or something involved in this show. I was signing her in and Harper said, oh, look, Dad, there's another Harper on the sign-in sheet. And I said, oh, look, yeah, there's a Harper J and you're Harper K. Uh, that's amazing. Another Harper. You two should. Uh... And then I just like stop talking. And then this mom standing right next to me goes, you two should become friends. And I go, oh, yeah, 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 you should become <laughs> friends. But actually what I wanted to say, the only thing I could think of to say was you two should fight to the death. <laughs> Which is clearly an inappropriate thing to say in a church in front of a bunch of other parents to your 12-year-old. But the fact that I couldn't think of anything else to say besides you two should fight to the death seems to me to be a tiny but potent measure of the ways in which sometimes I just do not think enough about what is the appropriate thing to express to my child in certain circumstances. So, I mean, I'm glad I didn't actually say it out loud. Alia tried to pitch that as the triumph, but I think almost saying it is still an enormous failure and being unable to come up with you two should become friends, a like basic beginner parenting level thing to say to someone is very notable. I don't think that's really a fail. One, especially because you didn't actually say it, but two, like this is a fail only if Harper would not have appreciated your humor. And it's hard for me to imagine that she wouldn't, right? Like from what I get from hosting this show with you and reading your book is that there's a way that you all joke with each other. There's there's a way that Elizabeth and her family jokes with each other. Naeem and I joke with each other. And many of those jokes, if heard by the outside world, sound incredibly inappropriate. But if I'd said that to my daughter, I think she would have just laughed and kind of, you know, known that I wasn't actually saying this person is now your enemy. So would Harper have just laughed it off or would she have said like, oh, does this mean that there's like a sense of competition between the Harpers? I think she would have been appalled if I had said it in that specific circumstance in front of other parents and other kids. At home, she would have laughed. But honestly, I do mean that the other Harper is now her enemy. Like there can only be <laughs> one Harper in this play. Was the other woman the other Harper's mom? I'll certainly never know because I'm never going to talk to her again. <laughs> she couldn't read your thoughts, Dan. She has no idea what you exactly. were thinking. She just thinks you don't know the word be friends. <laughs> <laughs> What's the thing called when you meet a person and y'all are nice to each other? One of those. Or also that you were tired and you just had a loss for words for a moment. I, I don't think she thought much about it. Now, if she listens to the show, she now knows. She now knows, yeah. I don't know. I feel like I got to live forever with the shame of knowing that this is the only thing I can think of. But thank you for bucking me up just a little bit. Before we move on to the rest of our show, let's talk a little business. Okay, Slate's parenting newsletter is the best place to learn about all the stuff that we do on Slate.com about parenting, including new episodes of this very show, new dispatches from Karen Feeding, Jamila, and many others, great parenting advice column, and much, much more. Also, it's just a personal email from me every week in which I encourage my child to fight your child to the death. Sign up at Slate.com slash parenting email. Plus, check us out on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. There you will find posts about the show, discussions of different parenting topics, plenty of advice from us and from many other great parents who listen to the show and who don't, and my itchy trigger finger banning anyone who's an asshole. In Slate Plus today, we will be answering a question from a listener who's wondering just how to set family boundaries with in-laws who are very enthusiastic about the new baby on the way. Here's a quick sneak peek of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. I actually, when I was reading this letter, thought, Send your mother-in-law to my house. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you don't want her with your kids, I'll take her. I can use the help. Um, You have no idea the specific chaos of your child until that child arrives. And then over the course of the first year, like every week is a new chaos. 
To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. That's Slate's membership program. It's a great way to support everything we do. For just 35 bucks for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and of many other great Slate shows, plus a bunch of other benefits. So support Mom and Dad are Fighting. Help us out. Go to slate.com slash plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay. On to this week's listener question. Today we're doing one listener question and a discussion with the second listener question in plus. And the question is being read, as always, by the inimitable Shasha Leonard. Dear Mom and Dad, ever since I met my husband 10 years ago, he's coached basketball. He loves it. It's his passion. However, his career, and what helps pay the bills, is that he's an English teacher. So he's always coached the school team. He's currently an assistant varsity coach, but has ambitions to run his own team someday. He definitely doesn't do it for the small stipend. He does it for the love of the game. He probably spends more on gas money driving to and from practices. I've always supported his passion even with the late nights, weekend practices, games, and occasional overnight tournament trips. But now that we have two kids, ages five and two, it's really taking a toll. We're both working parents, but five to six months of the year, I feel like I'm a single parent several days of the week. He has a long commute, so he leaves before the kids wake up. I've always been the only one getting the kids ready for school, doing drop-offs, and, most of the year, bedtime routines, not to mention rushing home from work to relieve the nanny. There are nights he comes home after a game, and I wish I cared if they won at all, but all I can think about is how crazy the evenings are, how much trouble I had getting the kids to bed, and how many emails I still had to answer for work. I feel resentful. Sometimes I feel silly complaining about being the sole parent for mornings and evenings. My friends that are single moms somehow managed to do it. Don't get me wrong, he's an amazing father and does his share. When he's gone for, say, six to seven hours on a Saturday, when he comes home, he often tells me to go off and do something for myself. Sometimes I take him up on that, but mostly all I desire is time together as a family. When he was gone for an overnight tournament, it really bothered him that he didn't see the kids over several days, so I know he also questions the time commitment, but not enough to stop coaching. I even suggested he coach a more casual local rec team, but he said the schedule would never work out to teach at one school and coach at another location. Part of the resentment also comes from the fact that I gave up a passion after having kids. I used to perform on a salsa team and never went back to it after my first child. I've come to terms that the time commitment isn't something I need at this stage of my life. I'm okay with that because my priorities have changed. Ultimately, I'm mostly annoyed because basketball takes precious time away from being a family, especially on the weekends. We can't even plan a short trip on a three-day weekend when I have a day off work because he has to be present for the basketball season. It runs our life. Am I a selfish asshole for wanting him to give up his passion? He knows how I feel, but at the same time, I would never tell him to stop just on my account. I think he needs to do it on his own, or I fear he'll just resent me. Is it unreasonable for me to want more of his help and time at this stage of our lives? Thanks. The coach's wife. I just want to start first by like affirming the letter writer. Five and two are super hard ages. The kids are like crazy and they still need a lot. It's very time intensive. I know that that's hard. And, you know, thanks for, I think, at least identifying the problem and being willing to talk about it. This is a hard place to be. And a lot of people let that resentment boil inside of them for a long time, which makes things so much worse. I tend to think of time as the most limited family resource. And that something that's important in a family is to discuss how that time is spent. That if all of our time kind of belongs to the family, how do we allocate that time? Now, I also feel like it's important for parents to be happy. And part of that is having life outside of just your kids and your family to have other things that you feel passionate about doing. So where I kind of came down on this is that I feel that the resentment is coming from this feeling of being alone, that she resents that her husband is out coaching the basketball and doing this thing that he loves and she kind of has nothing because you can only really change your own behavior, right? So she can deal with 
her own resentment issues. But I think that's done by like sitting down and approaching the problem as a team with her husband. So I think she needs to be clear with what's bothering her. And that doesn't mean just saying like the basketball is bothering me or coaching the basketball, but saying like what is bothering me is that I feel alone in this parenting. And I feel like at the end of the day, you would choose basketball over our family. And I never choose anything over the family. That's kind of how I read the letter. From there, she can hopefully have a conversation that says, like, well, what does she need? She talks about, like, he offers her time, but she wants to spend time as a family. And I can totally relate to that. My husband travels a ton for work and is gone. And when he's home, he always offers to, like, have me go off and do things. And I always feel like what I really want is for us to do things as a family. So I think that needs to be part of this conversation. And he has to then not necessarily give up coaching, but I think he needs to sit down and say, okay, here is what I'm willing to do. I I actually hear your concerns that it's about time and it's about being alone. How can I you know, help you in that journey. And I did come up with some practical solutions. Now, I have no idea if any of these will work or have been discussed, but you can always integrate yourself into the hobby. So I don't know if they're already like going to games or is there a way for them to volunteer or have their family time revolve around what he's doing. I also think that if this salsa dancing is something she loves, that they also need to make time for that. And when she's doing something For herself, I think she'll feel better about the balance of how things are going in the family. The only part I was kind of really bothered by is, like, he can't take any vacation or any breaks during basketball season. There are assistant coaches. There are volunteer coaches. If this is something that's important to you, that needs to be part of that conversation. You know, maybe one three-day weekend, there's just one coach. There has to be a way around that. That is all very thoughtful and sage advice. I would like to very slightly disagree (laughs) Uh by saying he just needs to fucking quit. He needs to quit being a basketball coach (laughs) right now because it is absolutely insane. I mean, she should have this conversation with him that you are describing. She should frame this in exactly the way you are framing it. She should definitely talk about her needs and how she is feeling, and they should talk seriously about how they allocate time in the family. But if at the end of that conversation, he does not say, you're right, I should quit being assistant varsity coach of this basketball team right now because we have very demanding children and I'm gone all the time and you are alone all the time and I don't help with anything. Then she needs, I think, to just like put her foot down and say, I'm sorry, you've got to stop doing this right now. There's just no circumstance, I think, under which when you have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, you should have any extracurricular that demands that many days and weekends out of your life and that many hours out of your time that doesn't also make you any money. But what if doing that breeds this resentment? Like if this is his passion, I just really worry about what happens when you then remove that. I'm somewhere in the middle of you both. The right thing to do absolutely would be for him to quit. It is a conclusion that he should come to on his own without his wife, who is obviously suffering right now without her having to put it to him as some sort of ultimatum. But he's not going to come to that conclusion. And I think, as we all know, dads typically, not always, but are typically better than mothers at advocating for keeping something for themselves present in their lives, right? Like they're not typically expected to do the lion's share of the hands-on parenting work. They are able to use their careers at times as an opportunity to be out and away from the family um, to the detriment of perhaps the mother's ability to balance all of her responsibilities, even if she is herself a working parent, like most mothers are. She has a lot to confront before she even has another conversation with her husband, right? And I think the thing that she has to be honest with herself about is that she made a choice to put her passions to the side or abandon them on behalf of her family. And she partnered with somebody who is not inclined to do the same thing. And so that doesn't mean that either of them are bad parents or that she's the superior parent, but she is the parent who is doing all the work. 
And that isn't going to work long term. I understand that she's fearful that if she takes away this thing that he's deeply passionate about, that the resentment will show up in their marriage or in their family structure. And she's probably quite right about that. But right now, the resentment is there for her. Right. There needs to be some redistribution of labor and redistribution of sacrifice. There's got to be some redistribution of resentment. And redistribution (laughs) of resentment. So I think that what I would advise you to do, letter writers, to first write down what an ideal schedule would look like for you that included time for yourself. Just start with a list of things that you would like to do, right? Is it that you would like to find a once a week salsa class that you can participate in or somewhere where you can, you know, become certified to be a salsa teacher yourself, right? So maybe that's a two or three day a week commitment. Do you get to go to the gym and work out? Do you get 30 minutes once a week to take a solo walk? What is it that would make your parenting life, your work life, your personal life happier and more fulfilled. And then I want you to think about what is it that you want to see the four of you as a family structure that you're not getting, right? So is it that you want to take a vacation two times a year? Is it that quarterly when there's a three-day weekend, you want to be able to do something with the kids? What does that look like? And then with that, how can you, before you bring it to your husband, have an idea as to What is a vision of you both being able to indulge in your passions in some way look like? But there has to be some serious compromise here. And you can't be afraid to ask for that. But I think that leading with the idea of you should abandon this as opposed to saying, here's how I get to be happy, too. You're not the only one who deserves to have a passion. Yeah, I love the idea to really think about what it is that you want and writing down what that schedule looks like. I do think it's important that people have their passions. And I think it's important for the kids to see, too, like, look, dad does this thing or mom does this thing that they love. Mom goes to Disney World. Yeah, mom goes to Disney World to run a race with her friends. Yes, but that's one weekend. You guys are really nice. You are really, really nice to this guy. But you know, I think if he is at all reasonable, once these things are presented, he may finally recognize that the only way to make things make sense in this household would be for him to let this particular basketball role go. I don't think so. I'm very eager to hear what happens when this letter writer takes your guy's extremely (laughs) good advice and not mine and does all these things. And then he's like, no, I'm sorry. They really need me on the team and I can't. I agree that I think Jamila is basically saying like the balance of power is off here. Yeah. But I guess I read it as that she is harboring the resentment instead of sitting down and having what is a difficult conversation. But I think you can have the conversation and it doesn't necessarily result in he can't coach this team. This will all be answered soon, hopefully, when this person writes back to us. (laughs) I think my knowledge of crazy fucking assistant varsity basketball coaches <laughs> suggests to me that there is no version of this job that is less intense than the version he is currently doing it. Yeah. That at a school that requires this much of a friggin' assistant coach of the varsity team, that's assumed as like the baseline level of commitment. And if you're not willing to put in that level of commitment, you're out. They'll find some other assistant coach to do it. I hope I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. Like, that's just the way that this stuff often works, especially when a person like this husband is so clearly committed and devoted to this thing that he already has taken himself away for months and months at a time, has been gone for weekends and expressed to his wife, oh, I wish I wasn't gone because I miss the kids, but hasn't done anything about it. And when presented with an option to coach a different team, a rec team locally, was just like, no, I can't. No, that wouldn't work. And so I feel like my concern is that all these reasonable, rational conversations will be had and they will be reasonable and rational on her part. And she will follow your perfectly great advice to the letter. And then he will be like, the team needs me too much. I'm sorry, I can't. I don't know that that's a different outcome than just saying, like, you have to quit. Yeah. In both cases, someone has kind of disrespected the adult relationship of the marriage. Oh, I don't think saying you have to quit is disrespecting the adult relationship of the marriage. If you say you have to quit and I'm accepting nothing else, and then he quits and is resentful, 
How is that any different than if you followed, you know, our advice to sit down, have this conversation, and then he's not willing to engage in the conversation? Because I think, the right person won. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. But, but he was a basketball <laughs> coach when she met him. Yeah. You know, if this were something that he'd started doing, you know, during her first pregnancy, that'd be a little bit different, right? This was something that was in her life longer than her. So yeah, but we all had those things. I, you know, I mean, she had salsa dancing. I performed my last show at the UCB a month before Lyra was born, and I've never done another show since then. I miss it all the fucking time, but it was clearly the right thing to do because the first years of being a parent are so hard and spending that much time away for something that is only for yourself. Right. It's just unconscionable, I think. I agree with that. I just think that by just simply saying, like, look, this is unconscionable. This is wrong. You got to stop it. The end. I think. No, it, no, you guys are obviously right. I'm just saying. <laughs> but I also. It would I, make me so angry if he's a dick about it. I'm with Jamila that I just agree that I hope that the presentation of something that is a halfway point, like this is what I need to be happy in this marriage with my family, is a like more comprehensible and digestible something to hear from your partner than kind of the angry like well you can't do this i just hope that coach's <laughs> wife hears me and knows that she's right even when she takes your guys better she's advice right she should she's not definitely like, right yeah here's the other one other thing i would say there is a golden opportunity here and if he can see this and maybe this is something you present in the course of this very reasonable conversation two years from now maybe three years from now he is, has the opportunity to coach their older child's team when that older child starts playing basketball. And that is the coaching job that he should be leaping at, right? That is a solution to this Absolutely. on multiple fronts. He gets to be on a court. Admittedly, the skill level will start very low, but he will get to mold and shape these players over the course of years. And he will get family time of the sort that he says he misses and that she definitely misses. And that is the step back that he should be making is to step back to coach your own child's team instead of this varsity team at the high school you just happen to work at where maybe someday 20 years from now when the coach quits, you get to be the varsity coach. I also think it is not going to ruin this guy's life if necessary to just take a two-year break between now and when it's time to coach his kid's team. Yeah, I guess I just hope he comes to that on his own. Absolutely is a better result. I am mm -hmm. so dubious that that will happen, but I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I have more faith. <laughs> I just want her to get in a salsa class. I'm like, well, if you're going to be tired, you might as well get something going for you yeah, that I agree. you She definitely about. needs to go do something she cares about. And if that means babysitters or other help or making him deal with the childcare arrangements on the night she does that, that's fine. I know that that would be great for her, but that's not what she wants. She wants the four of them together. And it would also be great if she had some time on her own. Yeah. But I do think the most important part of Jamila's advice that I would really hope she focuses on is don't only think about your schedule in terms of the things you want for yourself, but be very clear about how much time you want the four of you to be together in the house or out of the house on vacation. Make sure that is part of the thing that you are presenting. I agree. Him. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. All right, Coach's Wife, thank you for writing in. We really appreciate it. I really, really, really want to hear what happens. Please write us back. Everyone else, if you have a question for us and you would like to hear me give terrible advice and Jamila and Elizabeth give great advice, please email us at momandad at slate.com and I will get so angry on your behalf. Okay. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Nickelodeon's got your preschoolers covered from sunrise to bedtime with four brand new podcasts. Grab their backpack and go on a culinary quest with Dora's Recipe for Adventure. Make game time great time with Let's Guess Who with Josh and Blue. 
and tuck in for adventure with Nickelodeon's Goodnight Bedtime Stories. Plus, we've got a brand new season of Storytime with Josh and Blue. Search Nickelodeon on your favorite podcast app to listen. Onwards. This past Sunday, nine people died in a helicopter crash in L.A., including the former Lakers star Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna. Jamila, this week your Karen Feeding column departed from the regular Q&A style. Instead of answering questions, you wrote about how these deaths have affected you and your daughter and the struggle it's been to keep it together in their aftermath. I wanted to talk with you about that piece and more broadly with all of us about talking about death to kids. Jamila, the thing that struck me most immediately about the piece was Naima's response when you saw her the day after the crash. Would you mind telling us that story? Sure. Naima was with her dad this weekend, which means she was there when the news broke. And even though I checked on her by communicating with her dad, I didn't get to talk to her until Monday evening when I picked her up from school. And we Uber back and forth to school every day at this point. I grabbed her and we're walking to the car and she says, how are you? Have you been sad? I said, yes, you know, I've I've been sad, Naima. She's like, about the, you know, about the plane crash. I said, yes, I know what you meant, baby. And she says, have you cried? And I said, I've been crying. And I I said, how are you feeling? And she said, I was really sad today. And I said, did they talk to you all about it at school? And she said, yes, you know, when we came in, the teacher says, I understand that a lot of you all are feeling very sad about what happened. And if you need to talk to me or to the principal, We can, you know, make time and space for that. And at some point during the day, she started to cry and the teachers gave her the opportunity to write, which is something I really appreciate about her teacher and something that she's done for Naima on a few occasions with a number of things in particular, her just struggling to adjust to this move. To be in Los Angeles right now is somewhat difficult to describe. The city buses, many of them say, rest in peace, Kobe, right? On the digital read over the, you know, window where you can see what bus route it is. And so you could be having a moment of thinking of other things. There are these constant reminders from seeing people in Lakers jerseys to turning on the radio. The radio is a nightmare. And because we are Uber people, I constantly have to hear it. And between, you know... A set of songs, the host will come on and simply just recount what has happened. This thing that we all know has happened at this point or just saying, you know, we're just all so sad about Kobe, man. You know, and I understand that they're grappling with this, too. But to have to deal with these kind of constant reminders makes it difficult. Right. And I understand that that's not something that Naima's being spared from at all. She told me that she'd cried, you know, and then the teacher gave her time to write. And I said, OK, well, what did you write? You know, can you share it with me? And she said, yeah, I wrote that I'm sad because my favorite basketball player died. And I, as I wrote in the article, I was, you know, a tenth of a second of amusement because I'm like, I know Kobe Bryant wasn't your favorite player. You didn't get to see him play basketball. You know, he retired. I mean, she's been watching it her whole life with her dad. They are basketball people. She and her younger brother are basketball kids. For sure. But that was two years ago. And two years ago in, you know, the life of a six-year-old is a very long time. And so before I said, okay, was that really your favorite player? She says, and she was only 13. And Mm -hmm. in that moment, I just, it was like the wind had been knocked out of me. I, I didn't expect to be as upset as I was at the news that Kobe Bryant had died before there was news that one of his children and that other children and and other adults, uh, in addition to the pilot, had been lost, that I immediately, tears just came down my face. And I can't entirely explain why. Part of it is just that, you know, for 25 of my 35 years, Kobe Bryant was a pop culture fixture, right? His mortality is a reminder of my own mortality. His image, his likeness is one that has been a presence in my life, despite never seeking it out, I always had somewhat complicated feelings about him. And, you know, when I was much younger, he was simply a reminder that the Jordan Bulls era was not to last forever and that younger, newer players would come and we weren't always going to win championships. And I didn't always love how he sounded in interviews. And then some years later, he goes on trial for a sexual assault. I, I know we're going to talk about that a little in a few minutes, but for a number of reasons. He just wasn't somebody I paid attention to, and yet he was always still there. And so just to simply have a person like that removed before you even start to think about the fact that he'd had a child seven months ago 
and, and that he had four daughters and, and loved them dearly. And men who harm women or who may have harmed women oftentimes have mothers, daughters, wives who love them. And my grief was so much more about them than it was the idea of Kobe as a hero. You know, I I can understand him as a complicated person and not want him to perish in such a way. But to then have to deal with the fact that there were three children who died and that there was this little girl who, I mean, half the kids in Hollywood look like my daughter because so many of, or I should say half the black kids in Hollywood look like my daughter. I can see her face in them very clearly because they're the same complexion. And that's a conversation for another day. But to see this little beautiful girl who I had, you know, despite not trying to watch her grow up, I'd, I'd watched this child grow up. I'd seen her highlights. I'd, I'd seen that she was, you know, a, a basketball kid. And I thought it was great that, you know, kids were seeing this and that for all my weird Kobe stuff that we were watching a dad take an active interest in his daughter's sports career on a very public stage and what that would mean for other dads, you know, and it's particularly dads who may have dreamed of having sons to, to play basketball with and had been given daughters and that you can still have a basketball kid who's a girl. There's a whole league for them. You know, it, it's just a, a certain kind of fucked upness that I've been sitting with that, that people around me have been sitting with, but Naima's uh, watching her deal with it was not something I was entirely, even though I knew like from from when it happened that we were going to have to talk about this. And I, I called her father immediately when I found out not just to check on him, but because, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how my daughter is responding to the idea of this towering figure in our new city who has died. I'm going to admit, I wrote this in the article, I'm having a very hard time this week. And, and this is on top of still struggling with the transition of the move and, you know, other stuff. But like that this has been really, really hard. And I think that it's something we don't talk about openly enough as parents, as someone who's always, you know, I've let my daughter watch me cry a number of times throughout you know, her life. She's seen me cry. She's seen me get upset. I've been vulnerable with her. I've talked to her about being sad. I've talked to her about being sick. I've talked to her about being scared about any number of things. And yet in this moment, there's something that's going to have an emotional impact on us both. And I'm not quite feeling strong enough to be the captain here the way that I need to. And so when she says this, she tells me that this little girl was her favorite basketball player. And look, she very well may have only seen, you know, a picture or a clip here and there, but it takes so little, you know, for, you know, many kids, particularly my kids, to become a fan of someone. So I absolutely believe that the 13-year-old girl who looked like her, who happened to also be Kobe Bryant's daughter, was her favorite basketball player, even if she'd only seen her once or twice on the news. Certainly that day, right? That's a way for a kid to make that connection. Absolutely. And to justify to herself in a way the emotions that she is feeling that she has trouble putting into words and understanding. Right. Absolutely. You know, and so when she says this, I I couldn't really say anything. I just kind of grabbed her hand and I said, "Okay, let's get in the car. And she was talking a little bit. I wasn't entirely present. And I was just kind of staring out the window and trying really hard not to cry, you know, and and she looked at me and she saw it and she grabbed my head, which is funny because I'm, you know, five, nine and she's still much, much shorter than I am. And she grabbed my head kind of rough as best she could. And she put it in her little lap and she stroked my hair and kissed me on the forehead. And she's patting my head and saying, it's OK, mommy, it's OK, which broke me down in a whole other way, because now I'm, I'm feeling guilty, you know, that in this moment, I'm not the one who's doing this for her. We went home and I said, okay, I don't feel like being in the house. Let's go out to dinner. We went to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles and, you know, I let her pick out her outfit. So she goes and puts on her new edition shirt. So I put on my new edition shirt. New edition is our favorite group. We have a whole new edition thing. She's like a new edition encyclopedia. And so we're walking into the restaurant and she's like, okay, now mommy, anybody in there wearing a Kobe Bryant jersey just don't look at them okay I do not want you to be sad and I'm like Naima there's going to be people wearing Kobe Bryant jerseys today in Los Angeles it's okay I'll be fine you know and I realized that she'd already seen them out the corner of her eye and there were you know a couple folks in there wearing Lakers gear and we went and we had a nice dinner and we came home we didn't talk about it anymore at that point and when we were getting out the Uber, one of those radio moments happens. I think it was like a pre-recorded spot where they just, you know, rest in peace to, you know, the black mama and blah, 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 blah. And I just saw her face just change. And we were walking to the door and I said, what's wrong? She said, I'm trying so hard not to think about it. And that just, I feel sad. I just, I really just didn't want to think about it. 
you know, and, and that's the week we're having. We, we've talked about it. And I told her in that moment, I said, Naima, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry. That's not something that you have to hide. That's not something that you have to tuck away. You can't make yourself not be sad. This is a sad thing that happened. This is a sad thing that happened. And as somebody who I have at times obsessed over deaths like this that didn't necessarily involve famous people, it's just that it's in public. I have finally broken my yearly ritual of watching all the 9-11 coverage and and mourning every person and, and freaking out about it all over again. And I don't want her to be somebody that struggles the way that I do with death. And so I guess what I'm kind of coming to terms with now is that I have to really start to improve my own ability to face my mortality, her mortality, the constant presence of tragedy somewhere in our lives or in our view so that I can help her walk through it a bit more confidently than I have. I was struck by this line in your piece, which I think is very relevant to what you're talking about right now and is and is sort of about how we calibrate our own mourning when we're talking about stuff like this with our kids, when it's something that strikes us very hard, whether it's Kobe or whether it's his daughter or whether it's some other death in our lives. You know, you're talking in the piece about trying to be strong and wishing that you in your life were moving towards a position of being stronger in situations like this, or at least appearing stronger. And you say, I can't let her know how terrifying the death of any child is for me as her mother. And I'm really curious why you feel you can't let her know that or why a goal would be not to let her know that, you know, I sort of think that for various reasons, our kids do know how we feel about that, do know that that is like a unique and powerful terror in every parent's lives and that that is meaningful and important to sort of convey it. What I think of as sort of like a grander, this is how human civilization keeps running kind of way. I'm curious why you wrote that, and I'm also curious whether you think there is any value in our kids sometimes knowing, either on this exact issue or more broadly, just how much we can be struck by these things. I think I'm comfortable with her knowing how deeply I am saddened by this and other tragedies. I don't want her to fear her own mortality more than she already does. Um, and she's at that age where kids are just starting to figure out the kids die. She has to know the six-year-olds die, right? We've talked about it. She's seen kids on the news, asked what happened to them. Why do they have a tribute to this person? You know, because they died. And as somebody who has always had tremendous anxiety and fear and sadness around death, I want her to have a healthier relationship to the cycle of life than I've been able to have. You know, I think she understands that there are life-saving measures that her parents constantly are taking on her behalf from making sure she wears the seatbelt to walking on the inside of the sidewalk and, and always holding an adult's hand when she crosses the street. But I don't want her to have death anxiety insofar as I can prevent her from having death anxiety. Elizabeth, this news struck in a different way in your house, I think in part because of your husband's job. Can you talk about the conversations that you've been having? Yeah. So my kids don't know who Kobe is. And what struck them more was the helicopter crash element. Uh, Jeff's current job is flight testing helicopters. It was something that my seven-year-old saw on the internet and then obviously heard Jeff and I having conversations about. And he had a lot of questions about, you know, what kind of helicopter? Are these the same kind of helicopters that, you know, daddy flies and that he tests? And so lots of kind of providing that information. I think also that in our life as a military family, death is a part of that. I don't want to say that it's like something we're confronting all the time, but particularly being in a test flight community, my children have known a lot of people who have lost moms and dads. They threw, I mean, pretty, you know, tragic accidents or I think anytime there's like a death in a war zone, like it, it just feels very overwhelming. So I feel like what we have done is because it is something that I never know when it's going to pop up. Not that we've normalized it, but we've normalized it in the sense of like, it is something that we talk about that death is a part of life and deal with this anxiety um, by 
making sure that we're pretty clear about what happened, that life is short and our each day is not guaranteed. And so we need to be thankful for the days that we have here. And that is why like our everyday actions um, matter and how we um, interact with each other. And um, particularly when we're dealing with deployments, we talk a lot about making sure those conversations like really count and that we are um, expressing our love for people like a tragedy like this. And in this moment, it is a time to kind of be able to confront our morality with our children and and process this with them. Um, Because I really think that knowledge about death is powerful and that too much shielding from it then does make it feel overwhelming and it is like incredibly overwhelming and incredibly sad every discussion I have with my kids about this I mean I end up crying because I think that at the end of the day the question for them is sort of like are you going to die are we going to be left here alone am I going to die like no matter what we're talking about I feel like for children that's kind of what it boils down to and you know I can't promise them that I I won't die I certainly highlight that we take care of ourselves and we try to do our best and convey that um, I think like Jamila was talking about that we try to keep them safe as well Um, but we also talk about the support network around us and reassure them that they will be taken care of um, in the event that something happened we have a couple of books that are in our rotation and I just wanted to recommend Um, Two of them. Now, these are obviously my children are younger, but one is called The Dead Bird by Margaret Weiss Brown. And these children find a dead bird and they carry him into the woods and they bury him and they decorate the gravesite with flowers. And what I love about it is it's about the rituals that surround death. And for me personally, there is a lot of safety and security that I feel through these rituals. And I think that encouraging children to have those rituals with you is a way that humans kind of process these things. So that can be like the crying, the remembrance, you know, whatever your faith calls you to do, like all of those things are an important part to this mourning process. And I think this book, which comes out not like I can pull it out today and over the weekend and read it, but it's also kind of part of our rotation. Um, The other one is called Bug in a Vacuum by Melanie Watt. And it's about the state of grief, like the different phases of grief, but it's all shown by a fly trapped in a vacuum bag. And so it makes kind of like a light and funny sort of about this topic. But I think that's nice, too, because what that teaches you is that you will be sad about the situation, but also like you can get to a point of acceptance. I mean, the world is sad, but knowing that we will get over each of these and process it and kind of end up in this place of acceptance and able you know, to move on. I know. I think it, it's it's just like so hard to confront this with your kids because it's so personal and you don't want to scare them. Um, but also like it is something that happens in this life and they will face over and over and over. And some of them will be, you know, big and public displays like this. Some of them will be intensely meaningful to them um, and have you know, very little pomp and circumstance. And and I guess I feel like my job is to model grief and understanding and empathy towards those going through things or towards my own feelings and show them that it's okay to feel this way. There's a sort of a third and different way that our family has been talking about this. And I think we'll be talking about it. You know, we are not pro basketball fans. We're not in L.A., And so the kids have come into contact with this news because it's been in the internet spaces that they roam in, even there, it's something that they hear about and see about. But Gianna is a much more present character for them in this story than Kobe is. Um, And so that has been, we've talked a little bit about that. And it's rare, I think, for there to be a what to their eyes is a celebrity, even though Gianna was not truly a celebrity. She was living her own life and happened to be related to famous people. But for there to be news reports about this famous adjacent person their age who died is striking to them. And we talked about that a little bit. But the conversation that I'm really curious about that we haven't had yet, but which I think will be coming soon because Lyra is so particularly attuned to social justice issues and women's issues and because she's constantly cruising Reddit looking for things to you know, be outraged about. Mm-hmm. 
is when these questions come up about the rape trial, about the way that uh, the victim was treated before and during that trial, um, and about the life that Kobe lived before and after that, which are a bunch of extremely complicated questions that even go, I think, sort of beyond the question of, well, you know, a person can be uh, two different things at once and and embracing that as part of understanding the messiness of life. Like, you know, Kobe for times in his life seemed to almost embrace the worst version of himself that that trial presented. And then at other times in his life, more recently, he lived like a person who, who seemed like he was trying to very specifically make amends. He, you know, became a real advocate for women's sports in part because of his experience with Gianna and his other daughters and Gianna's basketball success and her love of the game. And talking through all that with Lyra is what I'm most interested to see what it will be like. And I'm curious, Jamila, if you've started thinking about as the years go on and Kobe, I'm sure, remains a presence in L.A. long after his death, how you think those questions might ripen and what form you think those conversations might take? Yeah, I'm glad that as far as I know, she hasn't yet been exposed to that part of the Kobe Bryant story. And it can't be erased collectively as adults, as the public. We need to deal with it. I want us to collectively reckon with it on a timeline that is effective, um, both in my household and in the greater universe, because our failure to really reconcile this stuff in 2003, that the sort of public accountability that we should want from somebody who has been accused of something like this did not take place, despite the fact that there was a criminal trial and a civil trial does not mean that we're prepared to do it on the spot when that person who remained, if not beloved, consistent in the eyes of so many people has just died, particularly under these circumstances. The work of eradicating rape culture is something that we can't only do when there's a big story of an accusation or when there's a story of somebody who's been accused in the past dying. Right. These are the two times where we're least equipped to really deal with it. And so, you know, I said earlier in the show, Naima is aware of R. Kelly and his crimes against women and girls that are obviously very well documented. When it comes to somebody who has one public facing accusation, that's a much more difficult conversation to have. But I think that the conversation I want to have with my child and with other children in particular is that about affirmative consent, about bodily autonomy, and that conversation as it relates to not just celebrities, but anyone who is a member of a protected class, that we begin to talk about the damage that we've done to our society by allowing people to escape accountability because we love them. Right. And, and that's the person who plays the piano in the church that everybody, you know, is a little bit weary about and don't leave your kids around him. But somehow he's still here every week or, or the uncle who's still invited to family gatherings, even though, you know, there's a cousin who says that he made her feel uncomfortable or said something about her, you know, breast getting larger. There's the uh, superstar basketball player that we buy a poster of and put him on our son's room despite the fact that we've never had a conversation about him being accused of rape that we have to start having these conversations constant some of us do right some of us do I've been doing this work for a long time I'm sure you all have been having these conversations with your families with your friends for a long time but most people are not and so to prevent to present people in the face of their grief with um, the perhaps complicated truth of somebody that they truly cared about and their own shortcomings uh, as a society isn't what's going to get it done. But I think that the other thing that is terribly hard and, and complicated to confront is that we're just surrounded by sexual violence, sexual violence and the belief that so many men have that their needs and desires are more important than that of women, 
that defines our lives. I mean, even when we talk about the first letter that we read today, right, about the man who's choosing to abandon his wife and their two kids so he can go be a basketball coach because that's his dream, that the needs, the taste, the comforts, the desires, the passions of men in our society way more than that of women and that that does not only show up in a sexual way, in a violent sexual way for celebrities or for, you know, what we think of when we think of a rapist, right? And that a whole lot of good, nice, sweet feminist men who are grappling with their own Kobe Bryant stuff because they never really liked him because they thought of him as a rapist are no less likely to be guilty of something like what he was described as having done. And I don't know, and I'm just so frustrated because like I'm stuck in this space of I don't, ever want to excuse sexual assault because we don't teach men how to do it. But I think we also have to acknowledge the fact that men will not stop doing this sort of stuff if we don't train them not to do it. And acknowledging that the messages that we get in our society are still training men to be rapists. They're still training men to be sexually violent and consistently so. And that you can do that and be one of the most beloved athletes to ever live or a school principal or, you know, a meek and mild, nice guy who stays in the friend zone that everyone thinks of is meek and mild and nice, that all of these guys can be sexual predators and we have not taken any meaningful steps toward challenging that. And so in the wake of what still would be a tragedy, even if someone were to be completely unmoved by the life or death of Kobe Bryant, to try and reconcile all that right now is overwhelming. Listeners, I'd like to know how you guys are talking to your kids and to other people in your lives about all these various questions about the death of Gianna, about the death of Kobe, about the way that Kobe has been a hero and the way he has been a villain, about the sexual issues and the racial issues, which we have barely even touched on in this conversation. These are all extremely complicated questions. Part of the idea of the show has always been that we generally are in favor of talking with our kids about the even the most complicated of questions. I've been interested and surprised at how tricky um, this this particular celebrity death, a thing that often feels pretty simple and easy to navigate with my kids, uh, has felt for for many, many people in my life. So drop us an email at mom and dad at slate.com. Let's move on to some quick recommendations. I will start with a very quick recommendation. We have one of those annoying refrigerators that you can't magnet anything to. They, they're like stainless oh. steel or whatever, and magnets don't stick to them, which is upsetting because the whole point of a refrigerator <laughs> is to stick things to it with magnets. So we got an adhesive uh, whiteboard that you can adhere to the front of your refrigerator and then a bunch of whiteboard markers. And so that the idea was that it would become sort of the family central location for information and notes and stuff like that, the way it was back when we lived in the dorms and you put a whiteboard up on your dorm room door. And after a hilarious six-week period in which we – all were angry about how shitty the whiteboard was because you would write stuff on it and then it wouldn't erase and it just got stuck there. And we were like, what a cheap ass whiteboard we bought, which ended when Harper discovered that the whiteboard had a thin plastic film <laughs> on the front of it that you had to peel off in order to get it to work. Now it works great. Anyways, it has now become like message central for our family. Uh, Harper writes little funny notes on it every day. We keep the family agenda. Kids can write down if they want something we need to get at the store. Um, it's been like a great little centralized like bulletin board for our family. We really like it. The highlight of it was definitely on Sunday when Harper wrote down what everyone had to do over the course of the day. And next to Alia's name, she just wrote drive people places, which is correct. <laughs> That was what Ali had to do on Sunday. Uh, what are you guys recommending? Elizabeth, what do you have for us? Um, I'm recommending a little product called Sticklets. And they are like little rubber rings. And they let you put um, a bunch of sticks together to build all kinds of things. And we're big on outdoor play. And one of the hard parts is kind of getting, you know, I want them to like go out and build things. But these are great. You can stick any kind of stick. They come in different little shapes. And they build these 
cool. Like you can build a fort and you can uh, attach things to trees because they like go around them. Now, my son did get stabbed in the forehead uh, with a stick while playing. Sure. Um, but, you know, that's par for the course at our house. But super fun. I actually like love being out there, seeing what I can do with them. And now I don't worry about them having string or whatever to tie them all together. And it's it's made them able to build all sorts of stuff, which is always really fun to see. That is really cool. Great recommendation. Jamila, what are you recommending? I'd like to recommend uh, Cartoon Beatbox Battles. They are these hilarious videos that you can find on YouTube where animated versions of some of your kids' favorite characters engage in, like, rap battles. So there's Mario from Super Mario Brothers versus Sonic and Pennywise versus the Joker and Batman versus Black Panther. And they're very kid-friendly and they're very funny and very silly. And apparently they've been doing this for some years and they've got millions and millions of views, but they are quite entertaining and there's a whole bunch of them. So your kid won't go down a rabbit hole and be done with the whole thing in a matter of a night. You can spread this out and enjoy them. Uh, Those are really fun videos. Great recommendation. That is our show. If you have a question you'd like to ask us on the air, leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or email us at momandad at slate.com. Please join us on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting. You can also post questions there. We'll take a look at it and maybe answer on the air. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Jamila Lemieux and Elizabeth Newcamp, I'm Dan Kleiss. Thanks for listening.